Think for just a moment of all the animals that are part of our lives. Family pets. Jed's a good boy. Good boy. Come here. Birds. Farm animals. And the thousands of wild creatures we know are out there. More scholars these days are exploring the complexities of the internal lives of animals and rethinking our place among them. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we delve into the complex relationship between humans and other animals. In a moment, we'll talk with a man who says when it comes to animals, we're not as special as we think we are. But first, honeybees. Between parasites, insecticides, loss of flowers, and a changing climate, things are tough for honeybees. But they have a champion in a woman in Norfolk, Virginia. John Last has this story, and he says she's creating apiaries in urban areas and involving local children in her research. They're putting tiny backpacks on the bees to track their foraging patterns. You may hear a little cracking because they will seal this hive close. It's the first warm day of spring. I'm standing in a vegetable garden in Calvert Square, a Norfolk housing project. Kids from the local preschool are playing behind me, and I'm watching Carrie Brown break into a beehive. Here we go. Oh, okay. You're going to get some buzz. That'll be good. Carrie is a retention advisor at Norfolk State University, but she's here today in her other role as Norfolk's Honeybee Brown, defender of the bees. It's a funny thing about bees. Talk about the sweetness of honey or the fuzzy bumblebee, and most people will say that they love them. But put 30,000 bees in your backyard, and you tend to elicit some heightened emotions. Brown started her first hive in the backyard of her Norfolk townhouse, but before long, an alarmed neighbor decided to call the city, and the hive had to move. But if you think a setback like that would stop Honeybee Brown, you don't know her. When some students expressed an interest in beekeeping, she snuck an apiary onto the roof of NSU's science building. I guess it was up there about six months before uh, anybody found out, and that was called (laughs) Operation High Honey. That posed some problems for President Obama's security team when they visited the campus in 2012. Um, For security reasons, the snipers were on top of the buildings, and probably at that time there must have been 300,000 bees. I was just thankful that uh, Mrs. Obama was a beekeeper and maybe the the snipers understood. The Secret Service might have been willing to accommodate 300,000 bees, but it soon became clear that Norfolk State was not, and the hive was moved again. Now, I should be clear here that Brown loves Norfolk State. She graduated from the school herself. 
But she also feels that her colleagues' fears of allergic attacks and painful stings come mostly from a lack of experience. A lot of times when I mention bees, um, people will say I'm allergic to bees, and and I understand that. Um, I'm allergic to them also, but it doesn't stop me from working with them. How often have you been stung? Probably, let's see, in the last six or seven years, probably about four times. Since I was facing the imminent possibility of staring down 40,000 bees, it was comforting to know Brown had been stung so few times. Nonetheless, I was a little nervous when we arrived at her apiary in Calvert Square. There we were met by Julius Norman. He's the youth programs manager at the Norfolk Redevelopment and Housing Authority. Norman, it seems, is constantly working, but today his business is showing me the community center's garden where Brown's bees have their home. Uh, we got some kale and some cilantro. There's collard greens. Norman started the garden as part of an all-encompassing strategy to improve community health. With healthier communities, kids perform better in school. With healthier communities, these communities begin to be safer. With healthier communities, you get more parents participating and involved in the life of their children. He can go on like this for hours, but he also walks the walk. When it came time to make the garden, Norman hired local kids to design and build irrigation systems, hoping to inspire a love of engineering. Now that the food is growing, the garden's vegetables are given away to local seniors or used in the center's healthy cooking classes. And, and, I, and I would like to think that it's the bees that make our watermelon, cantaloupe, and everything taste so good. But Brown has another motive for starting her apiaries besides Norman's good food. Bees are dying off in alarming numbers. Dropping winter temperatures are killing entire hives, while parasites and insecticides are affecting whole geographic regions. A shortage of pollen-rich flowers is even making it hard for the little honeybee to eat. But as fragile as the honeybee is, they're a key part of our food chain. And we're not just talking about honey here. This is what Brown said when I asked her what would happen in a world without bees. First, it would just be really a slow death for us. The bees are uh, responsible for three out of every five bites of food that we take. Now, Brown wants to use her apiaries in an innovative new research initiative aimed at understanding the plight of the honeybee. And I call them bee backpacks. By placing tiny sensors from Intel on honeybees' backs, researchers have been tracking where they forage for pollen and what obstacles they face on their trips. The students were excited. They were like, really, Miss Brown? Really? And I said, yes. They said, well, how do you get the sensors on the bees. I said, you shave their backs. <laughs> Do you use a straight razor or a disposable? <laughs> Joking aside, what Brown is talking about doing is putting some of the most advanced technology in the study of insects into the hands of kids. You know, it's high-tech research. That's how the brightest and the best are doing it. But um, I used to be an elementary school teacher, and I thought, you know, we could teach children to do this and present it as a game. Kids at Calvert Square will be able to pick and track their honeybee, collecting valuable data while they watch its movements between pollinator gardens Brown has built up in the neighborhood. The goal? To create a new generation of entomologists, a job Brown says she wishes she could have had. If I had 40, 60, 80 more years left, and maybe if I had known about just the field of entomology when I was a child, 
probably would have majored in entomology and made the bees um, my life's work. The time had come for us to face the hive. It's still more than a month before she'd even think about harvesting their honey, but she needs to check the health of the winterized hive. Brown cracks it open, squirts a few drops of sugary herbal water, a bee mojito, she called it, and takes a look inside. What she sees makes her ecstatic. And not only that, I was so happy to see so much honey. They, they are doing well. This is a treat for me. It's a treat for you, but it's really a treat. I haven't been inside in probably four months. You know, these bees have been doing their own thing for millions of years. We are just, uh, we are just helping them. They know what to do, but this gives them a home to come back to. And, and they're, they're safe here. There's no, no one, nothing's going to bother them. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees and the flowers That was a feature by John Last. Coming up next, new insights into how animals communicate. We'll start with the big question. What does it mean to be a person? Is it tool use, complex thinking, communication? And if animals are capable of all these things, are they persons? In 2013, India declared whales and dolphins to be non-human persons and outlawed keeping them captive for the entertainment of people. My next guest reminds us that we are animals, too. Alex Parrish is the author of the forthcoming book, A Hoot in the Light, Illuminating the Sensory Modes of Animal Communication. He teaches writing, rhetoric, and technical communication at James Madison University. Alex, what do you want to persuade us of with this book? Well, lately my main job has been to convince people that they're not as special as they think they are. For a long time it wasn't believed that animals could persuade or that they intended to do things. It was assumed that they were purely instinctual. And so part of the goal of this book is to persuade others that animals can persuade. Franz Duval, a famous primatologist, recently uh, wrote a book called Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? Uh, and it's a very good question because, frankly, there are instances where it seems like animals are much better able to understand us than we are to understand them. One example is a Chaser a border collie, and her ability to understand over a thousand human words. The uh, guardian of Chaser started giving Chaser toys and saying, go get Mr. Squeaky or whatever, go get Ball, go get uh, Giraffe. Um, and he'd name all of the toys, and Chaser would be able to pick them out of the box and bring the toy over to him. So Chaser is able to not only 
recognize the names of these toys and recognize verbs such as fetch and go get and find or bring over here, but also was able to infer which toy someone meant by process of elimination. What does this say to us about human-animal communication? Animals are smarter than we think they are. And in some ways, they might be smarter than us. So do you think animals can daydream, can um, tease out complex problems? Well, I know I can daydream, and I'm an animal. But to answer your other question, animals can definitely tease out complex problems. Animals such as dolphins or crows, who are extremely intelligent and can work out complex problems without direct reward. And we've, we've seen most people can't perform as well as certain chimps who have been trained to recognize sequences of numbers on computer screens. We've actually sent memory experts, people who are great at memory games, to go compete with these chimps, and we failed. And when this research first came out, it angered a lot of people. Because we thought the cognitive domain, the thought, the gray stuff, that's ours, right? That's human trait. Being able to think logically, step by step, or being able to retain things in our memory. There's been a whole history of how humans have set forth classifications that have made us distinct from the rest of the animal world. Can you give me a brief history of how we have done that through time? Sure. It seems from the beginning of agricultural society, rather than respect the animal, we've sought to treat them as property, to conquer the animal, to conquer nature in general. And early philosophers, of course, picked up on this, saying, well, obviously we're different and we're probably better, so why? So some of the reasons they thought why were, for instance, tool use, right? Scientists didn't recognize tool use as something other animals necessarily did. It wasn't until Jane Goodall went out to live with the chimpanzees, and she saw them fashioning sticks to fish for termites and termite mounds, that she realized, you know what, not only do they use tools, they actually make tools out of things in their environment. Did that create a sensation? Well, yeah. <laughs> she reported her findings to her thesis advisor, uh, who's Louis Leakey. What he said in response to Goodall was, if these chimps are using and fashioning tools, now we must redefine tool, we must redefine man, or we must concede that chimpanzees are humans. We didn't concede. <laughs> we didn't. Uh, in fact, it was so unpalatable to think that chimpanzees are humans or even just people that we did try to redefine what it means to use a tool or what it means to be a human. Another benchmark of what it was to be human was always language use. And when we, we discovered animals were communicating and were using languages if we define them in certain ways, we redefined what language was. Often it was then symbolic communication, right? Things need to stand for other things for us to call that communication. Uh, it wasn't until recently that scientists accepted, hey, there are symbol-using species other than ourselves. Anyone growing up in the, oh, 70s or 80s is probably familiar with the show Flipper. Flipper sort of planted the idea in our, our collective unconscious of this 
intelligent, non-human mammal, right? The dolphin. They continue to show us that they're far more intelligent than we thought. Simple symbolic communication, we could even see in the Flipper program, just the very basic idea that if I raise my right arm and a dolphin raises its right pectoral fin, those require a translation saying your arm is like my fin, right? I have, I'm waving my fin arm. Or even better is if we move a foot and a dolphin mirrors that with either fluke, then we see they're translating. This is my foot fluke. What was behind the pronouncement a few years ago by the Indian government that declared dolphins and whales are non-human persons and could therefore no longer be held captive in amusement parks? Well, India is ahead of the times in many ways in terms of animal rights and uh, just empathy toward animals. It comes, I'm sure, from having such a large population of people who are vegetarians who don't believe we should be eating or hurting or using animals the way we do in the West. So it was a statement saying that we shouldn't keep intelligent non-human persons in cages. We shouldn't cage them. We shouldn't treat them as property. We shouldn't teach them tricks for the entertainment of others. There are similar lawsuits being made in the United States on behalf of chimpanzees or other primates. It's so interesting to think of animals with rights, right? It is. Uh, We are animals with rights, but we haven't always been animals with rights. Philosophers will say there's many definitions of personhood. There's biological personhood, which every, every human is going to be a biological person. But then there's moral personhood, where... People are moral persons if they have rights and responsibilities to others. Now, we can look at other animals and say, well, aren't they moral persons too? My cat, if she has a litter of kittens, doesn't she have responsibility to those kittens? In my house, both of my cats have rights that many people don't have. Uh, If you came over and jumped up on my table and sat down, I would think that was an odd behavior, but with my cats, I can't, you know, convince them to not do that. So we persuade one another about how we're going to live. And this is a lot of what human-animal communication gets at, is this this mutual sort of engineering of how we want to live together, how we occupy the same space, because animals, in many cases, are parts of the family. How did you first become so deeply appreciative and interested in the thought processes of animals? Well, you know, I grew up in a, on a small ranch in southern Minnesota. We had horses and chickens um, in addition to the wildlife. And so I, I engaged deeply with animals at a very young age. And I think that's an opportunity not all children are allowed to have. And I didn't realize that until... I kind of left home and saw people didn't really know animals. People didn't know that animals had feelings, that they could think things, or even that they're important, not just as a commodity, but, you know, in their own right. Is there a growing number of people that are cognizant of the humanity of animals? I think there is a growing number. There are markers such as prevalence of vegetarianism or veganism, 
where people are thoughtful about how what we do affects animals. Even the idea of eating organic, free-range, cage-free animals keeps more animals off the feedlots. But we haven't reached yet a point where we can actually start to make the case that it's economically viable for these major companies to go ahead and treat animals ethically, right? Until it makes financial sense for them, it's going to be a very hard sell. And so we need more numbers of people who are actually interested in the welfare of the animals they eat. What if we get there? What if we do manage to accept that humans are not as special as we think we are? What do you think would happen? I don't know that we'll ever see that, but I'd like to think in terms of baby steps here. I think if we can just raise some more awareness that, and it doesn't even have to be that humans aren't that special, maybe it's that other animals are special. And if we look at them in their own context, in their own environment, we'll realize some of the ways we create these hierarchies are, are very anthropocentric. That is to say, they're very human-oriented. So using human categories based on what humans are good at seems to put other animals at an unfair advantage. So the idea is we should treat animals within their own context, within the environments they've evolved to exist in. And you would say at least cease the cruelty. At least cease the cruelty. Many people have seen recent documentaries like The Cove, where we see the slaughter of dolphins, uh, and some of these dolphins are lured in by injuring one dolphin inside of an enclosure, and as the dolphin calls out for help, all the other dolphins will come in to try to support this injured dolphin, uh, and then the slaughter begins. Or we've seen uh, documentaries like Earthlings, where you see the procession of cats and dogs and kittens and puppies getting loaded into these crates that are then put into gas ovens and murdered. And it goes on and on. And these animals aren't being killed because they're bad animals, because they hurt anyone. They're killed because they're inconvenient. So do you feel that you and others are struggling to make a case for the um, interior thoughts and ability to communicate of animals? Or do you know that it's there and you're struggling to find a way to convince others of what is there? That's a good question, and I, I think I need to answer that in several pieces. I think any pet guardian can tell you their animals have thoughts and feelings. Now, the idea that animals have inner lives that they think and feel hasn't been a popular one in the sciences or the humanities for a very long time. But people have begun to show, for instance, Barbara King has has a very popular book, How Animals Grieve. Elephants, primates, dolphins, we see grief happen among animals. I, I would find it dangerous to say animals pout, But I've seen my cats do something that's close to what human (laughs) pouting would be. Uh, You know, if I I don't open the tuna can when they want it, I see a lot of sulking going on in my my home. What do you think people are afraid of? Why is it important to us, do you imagine, 
that we feel that we're at the top of the food chain or the top of the pyramid, as long as we can live our lives, why is it critical to us that we are superior? I think in some ways agricultural societies have to feel special, have to feel above the animals they're controlling, the animals that they're using as a food source, the animals that they own, in order to carry on. It's really difficult to own a person and consider them a person, right? We fought a very bloody war about this same sort of thing in the 1860s. So to give animals personhood is to give them a certain, not just to give them a set of legal rights, but also to treat them as moral beings, beings we should empathize with. Do you think primarily the reason we don't now is because we eat and make money off them? Would we be more inclined to do as the Indians do and say, no longer imprison whales and dolphins? Sadly, I don't think so. There's a gentleman named Kenneth Burke in my field who said uh, in his definition of man that humans are goaded by hierarchy. In the Christian tradition, Aquinas had a very long exposition on the great chain of being. That is, there's God, and then there's angels, and then there's humans. But wait, there aren't just humans. There's noble humans. And then there's priestly humans. And then there's the rest of us humans who aren't as good as those other humans. Then we make divisions between the wealthy and the not-so-wealthy. Then we make divisions between people of this race and that race, or this religion and that religion. And by the time we finally get to animals, we've already divided ourselves up into so many categories that we end up using animals as a tool to oppress those other categories. Now, there are some obviously dramatic examples of this uh, during the Holocaust. Nazis would say, Jews are dogs or Jews are vermin. Uh, during the Rwandan genocide, there's a famous speech talking about Tutsi cockroaches. This is how we do what I call animaling others. It's a form of dehumanization where we turn people into beasts, right? Into brute beasts who we can animal, who we can then oppress. It's actually, it's a very ubiquitous sort of thing. Well, Alex Parrish, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Alex Parrish is a professor in the School of Writing, Rhetoric, and Technical Communication at James Madison University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. What comes to mind when you hear the word shrew? Are you envisioning a tiny mouse-like animal with a super long nose? That's what they call the true shrew, a relative of the mole. And it's the unlikely subject of a study involving roadside litter. Wildlife biologist Kevin Hamid says careless human behavior is impacting the future of the shrew. Kevin's a professor of biology at Virginia Highlands Community College and a 2017 recipient of the Outstanding Faculty Award from the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Kevin, we've heard about how litter kills wild animals, whales swallowing plastic in the ocean, or plastic rings from six-packs strangling wild animals. But your study is the first that I've heard that discarded bottles are killing small mammals. Tell me about that. Sure, yes. We are basically picking up on some work that was originated in in Europe in the 1960s, where they had done an investigation along some roadways and noticed that they were finding remains of, of small mammals, mainly skulls, in these bottles. And then in the 1970s and 80s in other areas of uh, the United States, especially in the eastern United States, they had begun to look at the same effect along major highway systems. But when we initially thought about this, we thought, what about our more remote areas where we actually have much more sensitive species of small mammals? We have some really rare and uncommon small mammals in these national forest areas. So my students and I decided to investigate the Cherokee National Forest to see potentially what effect uh, discarded bottles and cans could be having on these small mammals. Was the portion of the Cherokee National Forest you looked at in Tennessee? It was. Uh, we were in an area in Sullivan County, Tennessee, which is in the in the far northeastern portion of Tennessee. And we were along a road called Flatwoods Road, which is a, actually a fairly well-traveled road to be inside of a national forest. Um, a lot of local citizens use that road on the weekends to reach recreation destinations. So it gets uh, an unusually high amount of traffic on it compared to a lot of other Forest Service roads. How many cans and bottles did you find, and how many of them had tiny skulls in them? We found uh, almost 3,000 bottles along a very small segment of road, and within those, we found over 100 shrew skulls uh, in those bottles. Uh, Obviously, the steeper the bank Um, where folks were throwing their bottles out. We typically found many more um, shrew remains in those, and it appears that the angle of the bottle is really the key. So if you have a really sharp bank next to the road, the bottle typically lands not flat, but it lands with the mouth of the bottle either pointing up to the road or down, and it creates a very steep angle inside the bottle. And what we hypothesize is that the shrew actually runs in there not willing to go in there. It it basically makes a mistake because they're moving so fast. These animals move across the forest floor very, very quickly. And once the shrew realizes it's in the bottle, it's too late because then it's going downhill on glass. So it would would be like you or I deciding to run downhill on an ice-covered road and wishing we had changed our mind. It's too late. Oh, poor things. It's very tough, yes. So you don't think they're attracted to something inside the bottle or the bottle is a nesting area. You think it's an accident. 
it, it appears to be there is some thought that as we have um, worms and other invertebrates that get in there and begin to decay, that the odor from that could potentially attract them that they're thinking they're smelling food. Um, and in some cases, we have found a few bottles that are not in, in the uphill position that are actually um, level. And we found uh, debris, vegetation debris, where it looks like maybe white-footed mice have used those to nest in. But the ones that are pointed upslope that are very, very steep, um, the animal appears to run in there. And again, it, it's a fatal decision because there's no way to turn around and escape the bottle. And it's not like a crab trap where once they get in, they can't get out. If it were level, they could walk out of that narrow opening again, or, or is the opening too narrow for them to get back out? No, it it appears, but you know we haven't. We're in, and that's actually our next question is uh, at some point down the road we're going to run some laboratory trials to actually video and watch these animals in, in a scenario where. Once they do become uh, trapped, you know, we can get them out so there's no harm to the animal. But to actually monitor and see what what the mechanism is that they are becoming uh, trapped. But the other thing, too, if the bottle is level, the mouth is then um, above the ground. And most of the shrews are running right along the surface of the ground. So if the if the opening is just slightly above the ground, they won't go in it. You have found a number of species, not just shrews, but many varieties of shrews and others, and I love hearing the names for these little guys, in addition to the smoky shrew and the southern bog lemming. There are a bunch of others. Can you remember the names? Sure. You know, we, we do have the, the smoky shrew. We also have the northern short-tailed shrew. And in working with really students of all ages, from elementary school students through my college students, and even working with master naturalist groups, that's one of my favorite animals to really interpret and, and talk about to folks. It is North America's only um, venomous species of, of mammal. They actually have the ability to, uh, you could say there's a debate there, you know, are they they're poisonous, are they venomous, in the sense that can they actually envenomate you? But the, the toxin that is in their saliva is is poisonous, and the thought is that when they chew, the, the chewing motion there actually envenomates their prey. But uh, for you or I, the very few people who have ever been bitten by one, you basically react uh, like you would with a bee sting. But for uh, a helpless earthworm under the ground, the toxin actually goes after its nervous system, and it paralyzes the worm. Um, the shrew is then able to take the worm back to an area where it caches the food. And thinking about the poor worm, it's paralyzed, so it's unable to crawl away. But it's alive, so it doesn't decompose. So when the shrew becomes hungry or has a, a time period where it cannot collect uh, food that it needs, it will actually go back to that cache and, and eat these animals that it, it has rendered <laughs> immobile. <laughs> so that's a fun one. It's so great to hear a wildlife biologist talk so admiringly of a poisonous mouse, in effect. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there are actually great benefits for, for us because their diet consists uh, 100% of invertebrates and especially a lot of, of harmful insects, um, especially to gardeners and, and folks in, with agriculture. And all of these shrews, the smoky, the southeastern, the uh, northern short-tailed shrew, one of the, the interesting things about them is their metabolism. They literally have to consume twice their body weight a day just to survive. 
Um, if they go through periods of three or four hours without food, they actually will shut down. That That's normally terminal for them. So when they get trapped in these bottles, unfortunately, they only have a few hours until they run out of food. Some of them have resting heart rates of seven to 800 beats a minute. Um, in fact, the smoky shrew has even been documented. Um, there was a study done once where it apparently um, died. A loud clap of thunder happened and, and basically scared it to the point that its, its heart stopped. Um, their heart rate can get up to 1,200 beats a minute. And again, with some of them, a, t- a 10, 10-month-old, 12-month-old individual uh, would be considered a very um, ripe-aged shrew. It's rare that they exceed 12 months in age. What other species did you find also? We also found uh, both white-footed and deer mice, uh, which are typically the most common mice that you'll see in the eastern part of the United States. Uh, We had a house mouse. We found a couple of voles. How can you tell the difference between all of these creatures just based on finding their skulls? You basically become a small mammal dentist because uh, for a lot of these, the only uh, clear-cut differences that are left once the shrew has, or the small mammals decomposed are the shape and the number of their teeth. So we, uh, we use microscopes and bring, bring these skulls back to the lab and examine their teeth. The other thing that's helped us with this is a lot of modern bottles, especially the uh, beer bottles, they have a date on the side of them that says the date that they were produced. Now, we kind of made a little bit of an assumption that, okay, the person went to the grocery store and purchased that the day it was produced, which we know that wasn't the case. We would find some bottles that would have four and five skulls in them. Some of these were bottles that milk was actually given to school students in in the 1960s. So the the bad thing about the glass bottles is they have such a, a long lifespan that a bottle that's thrown out into the forest today, 60, 80, 100 years from now, could potentially still be there and still trapping animals. Kevin, your students must love this kind of field work. <laughs> it, it is you know, it's, to me, the science is wonderful, and anything that we can do to answer questions and improve the ecosystem is great. But the true benefit to this is the experiential learning opportunities for these students, especially now where people sometimes maybe misunderstand science or in some cases maybe are even fearful of science. They actually get to go out on a, you know, on a real project, collect the data, see how the data is collected, understand the scientific method. So, yes, some of it is about the small mammals or the salamanders with other work we do, but it's also about just letting these students understand how questions are answered. And and what's great is along the way, they start asking their own questions. Many of the ones that you and I have, have just been speaking about today, whatever job that they end up doing and career path they take, they're going to remember these experiences. And whatever, you know, at some point in their careers, whatever they could do to maybe help these organisms, they're going to remember that fun experience they had with shrews or salamanders or whatever they're working with at Highlands. Kevin Hammond teaches biology at Virginia Highlands Community College. He's a 2017 recipient of the Outstanding Faculty Award from the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Coming up next, how to help animals avoid cars on highways. Humans and cars are a dangerous combination, 
especially if you're a skunk, raccoon, deer, or turtle just trying to get across the road. My next guest is a mathematician who decided it was time to stop and count the roadkill and see if he could devise a way to help stop the wildlife massacre. James Vance is a professor of mathematics and wildlife resources at the University of Virginia College at Wise. James, are there any figures that you're aware of of how many animals are dying on roads every day in the U.S.? Yes, yeah, they can be up to... 10 or even 15 or 20 animals killed per night, per mile. And that's of animals that we can see. Even small animals like salamanders and frogs, it can be up in the hundreds per night on certain stretches for certain nights. Has there been concern on the part of scientists about actually decimating populations, whole species? Well, for a lot of the species that are pretty abundant. There's not too much concern. Uh, Like in our roadkill, we had like 1,837 roadkills, but like 400 and some of those were the Virginia opossum. The big concern for most people has been larger animals like moose or elk or deer, where there's significant human casualty. And most of those larger animals have fairly stable populations. How did this whole idea occur to you to study How many animals are being killed on the highway? Basically, my nose started it all. (laughs) I was driving, uh, you know, the 60 miles to work every day. And especially in the springtime, um, I was seeing so many dead skunks on the road. It was just like skunk after skunk after skunk. So it finally took me a couple years to say, you know what, I'm going to study these guys. I'm going to figure out how many are dead on the road. You know, how many were killed, different species that were killed, where they were killed, and trying to figure out if we could, like, time it. Is there a reason that I'm just seeing most of them at this particular time? So what did you do? You started monitoring that 60-mile stretch of four-lane high-traffic highway. How long was that? Yeah, so I did it twice a week for a whole year, um, and we got 1,837 animals in that one-year period on that 60 miles. What kind of animals did you find? So everything from bear and deer all the way down to even frogs, uh, mice, rats, uh, lots and lots of birds. So there was a whole gamut of animals that we saw and and collected. Again, the most of which were pretty common species like the Virginia possum or the raccoon. 65 different species in total. We had eastern screech owl or barred owl. We had lots of songbirds. We had some relatively rarish mammals like mink and long-tailed weasels. How are you spotting the carcasses? Surely you're not taking time off every day to travel up and down these road stretches. Actually, I do. I live in Richlands, and I drive to Wise twice a week for work. And so I just leave an hour and a half early, and I stop at every carcass I see on the road. Isn't that dangerous for you to cross the highway? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, yes and no. Um, I've never had any close calls that I know of. Um, I got a light on my car, so an amber light on my car, and then I also wear an orange vest, and so then I'm just careful. I understand you're also using Google Earth and Google Street View. How does that help you? So what that does is that keeps us from being in the field beside fast-moving vehicles, and we can collect a lot of those same variables on the computer, 
like? What is the habitat type in the median? We can see that from Google Street View. Did you have a lot of bears? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. We did see bears. I think we found three bears in one year. But it was more rare for us to see bears and even deer because most of the time when when a bear or deer is hit, there's significant vehicle damage. Police get called. Police come out and say, get this animal out of the road or off the side of the road so people aren't stopping and looking at it. It's more of a safety hazard. So they tend to pick up those bigger animals before we could actually, you know, because I only did this twice a week before we get to them. You also mentioned screech owls. Do owls get hit by cars? Yes. This eastern screech owl in Virginia gets hit a lot more than we thought. We had 43 owls get killed uh, in one year, and most of those were in about a four- or five-month period between November and March. Have you looked into why that might be the case? Do they swoop low to go after these mice? Uh, Well, that's what we think is happening Based on other studies, like up in New York, it's mostly probably juveniles that are being killed. So chances are, if you're an adult, you've already, you know, crossed this road once or twice and you've survived. And so you know not to do it again, or maybe there's been close calls. But mostly it was juveniles were guessing. To count the animals on the road that were killed by cars and trucks, did you collect the carcasses? Well, initially we were going to going to try to collect them. And, you know, we were talking about skunks initially, and I was thinking, (laughs) how in the world am I going to collect all these skunks in my car? My wife's going to kill me. So, I mean, I was thinking, you know, I could have a bike rack on top with a shovel (laughs) and... You know, I could just leave it up there. And But we decided um, that really we didn't want to change the layout of those animals along the road because some of those animals were drawing in predators to feed on them. So we didn't want to change the dynamics. So what we decided to do was just mark them. So we would uh, do white stripe of paint on either side of the animal. So we didn't double count. So we knew where it was at, knew what it was. And so I kind of got known as I've even got stopped at restaurants or uh, gas stations saying, are you the guy that does all that striping? I have no idea what's happening for a whole year. All these dead animals are striped on either side. So, oh, my gosh. So you were spray painting the roadway where the carcasses were? Yes, that's correct. Huh. So we were mostly just counting how many there were and identifying the species, which is, you know, hard to do on some roadkills because sometimes there's not much left, Did unfortunately. Did shock you? Yeah, I mean, you we found more domestic animals than we expected, you know, like cats and dogs. And, you know, initially, you know, it was like, man, we just found something that's cool. We found an otter or something. And I would text my wife and say, you know, we found an otter. And... Then I would say, oh, man, I just saw this beautiful golden retriever dead right in the middle of the road. And finally, one day she said, baby, stop texting me about dead animals. Please, (laughs) you are ruining my day. (laughs) You know, growing up near water, I used to see turtles crossing the roads every day. And my family would stop and get, you know, somebody would get out and move the big turtle across the street. I really don't see that these days. And I wonder if we have decimated turtle populations just on our highways. Well, they are a tier three species. The eastern box turtle is. It's a tier three species, which is a high conservation need. We found 43 of those turtles dead on the road, which was way more than we expected. And it could very well be hindering their population growth. Did you find a lot of animals that were hit but not dead? 
we found a few animals that were hit and not dead. Um, of course, you know, we're just collecting a sample, so there's probably many more animals that were hit and ran off, and we never found them. Uh, but we did find a few animals that when we walked up to them, they were still alive. Uh, I remember this raccoon one time. I walked up to it, and I was getting ready you know, just reach over and paint on both sides of it, and all of a sudden this thing came loose. <laughs> it about scared me half to death, started <laughs> running across the roads. Cars were screeching tires and stuff. It made it across the road. I, don't, I mean, I don't see how this animal was still moving, but he was. Mm-hmm. What were you trying to do? Figure out whether animals were trying to cross the road at a certain site and therefore maybe come up with a more user-friendly site for the creatures? Initially, we just wanted to find out how many were being killed, what species was being killed, and then try to develop some models to predict where those were happening so that we could then go in and try to make some changes to that area to try to make it easier for the animals to cross, maybe you know, looking at culverts or underpasses, places where we could change the habitat or change the structure of the road, because this is an existing road. This road's been there for a long time. Nothing major is probably going to happen. Most major constructions that you hear about, you know, putting overpasses over roads are done in new constructions. This is an old road. It's been there a long time. We were just trying to see if there's anything we'd do to save some animals and to help, you know, with human safety. Do you have any ideas? Things you could do that are fairly simple techniques that might reduce the number of deaths? Yeah, we've, we've been thinking about that a lot because we saw so many animals dead on the road. And, you know, what we're kind of doing right now is trying to pinpoint where those hot spots were of roadkill. And then we're going to go in and look and see, is there anything we can do, you know, something small that we could do, like maybe cut back some brush to allow them to enter into a culvert. Maybe it's grown over and so the animals literally can't even get into a culvert to cross the road. Or maybe there's lots of riprap rock that's in the way. And so it's not comfortable for the animals to go through a culvert or an underpass or something like that. So that's, that's our ideas initially because we're not, we're not going to be able to get lots, huge amounts of funding to retrofit this road. So we're going to have to do small scale stuff. Crossing the highway late last night. He should have looked left and he should have looked right. He didn't see the station wagon car. The skunk got squashed. And there you are. You got your dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. Stinking to high heaven. James Vance teaches mathematics and wildlife resources at the University of Virginia College at Wise. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. SmithfieldFoods.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. 
I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.